The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. The text for today's sermon is from Genesis 25, verses 19 to the end of the chapter. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paran Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus... Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. These are the words of the Lord. Let's pray together. So Lord, we are asking you now to continue what you've already been doing in this worship service. This gathering of your people, you've been by your spirit through the truth of your word, prayed and sung and illustrated. Uh, you've been working in our hearts, you've been comforting us, you've been convicting, been exhorting us and encouraging us. We're asking you to do, to do that now through your word and by your spirit. Lord, help us see you as you are, see you as good how you are, and worship you. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the uh, joys of this Genesis series is that a lot of you have reached out either in conversation or by email or in various ways, and you've talked to me about how good it's been to see God's ability to keep His promises to overcome every circumstance that tries to mess up His promises even our own foolishness, 
And you've talked to me about how it's met you with deep comfort. And it should. (laughs) It should meet us with deep comfort. It's a profoundly comforting thing. It's really the bottom, (laughs) foundation of all comfort to not have to rely on ourselves or our circumstances to know that we will inherit all the promises that God has made. I can't think of another bottom or foundation that puts it outside of ourselves or our circumstances. And the theological term for this power God possesses is sovereignty. So what I want to do to start out this sermon is just read you a few verses. We've been seeing it illustrated in Genesis, but just read you a few verses that just explicitly tell us how sovereign God is. And I think that we're going to have them up on the screen so that you can read along. So first, Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. That's a sweeping statement. He does all that He pleases. Or Isaiah 46, 9-11. If you've been around Bethlehem, you've heard this one quoted seven billion times. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Declaring, that's His word, declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east. The man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed. I will do it. Or Psalm 147. He gives snow like wool. Verses 17 and 18. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and he melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. Or Ephesians 1.11. In him, in Jesus, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So from these verses, we see God is sovereign over nations and over nature. He's sovereign over souls and over snow. Right? He does all that he pleases and all that he purposes. And this is good news to us because it means he can keep his promises. But it can be kind of startling news as you kind of work that out in your mind and your heart, can't it? It can be startling news to begin to see that the God who promises to work all things together for good is actually the one in control of all those things by his sovereign hand, not just kind of taking them and and repurposing them to, to make sure everything works out okay for you, but the one, as a good father, working them, controlling them for your good. It's a little bit different thing than let land in your heart. In fact, we could make a case that one of the themes of Genesis is found in Genesis 50, verse 20. Genesis 50, 20, really, again, a well-known verse. It says, as for you, this is Joseph, right? He's he's talking (laughs) to his brothers about them literally taking him, throwing him in a pit, 
trading him into slavery, right? That, that's what they did to him. And here's what he says to them. As for you and all that that you did to me, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And then this next phrase, normally we stopped it, this next phrase is what's most definitive. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. In other words, God wasn't just there kind of repurposing all of that, but God was bringing it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is our God in all His unrivaled power. He does what He pleases. This is our God in all of His sovereign wisdom. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. This is our God who stands apart in unmatched control of all things. Our God does what He pleases. And I hope my goal is at the end of the sermon, he won't just be high and lofty and removed, but that you'll see all of this sovereign power in this story working for your good and for his glory. And that's good news for us. So let's dive in here to this text. So we didn't read it, but we're going to start in verses 1 to 18, death's shadow in God's promises. We've seen lots of these sections where we have these transitions that are marked by genealogies and then normally kind of the, the death of a prominent person. And really two things happen in these 18 verses. Number one, Abraham marries a wife that is likely another concubine and the children are born to him and then Abraham dies. That's one thing that happens. The second thing that happens is Ishmael's genealogy of his children and then his death. And it was striking to me this week after spending a lot of time, like I don't know about you, I probably feel it's a little bit more than you, but I feel like I kind of know these people now. <laughs> I kind of know Abraham and Sarah and, and Ishmael. And these people have played such a, a huge part in this story of God's purposes and God's promises in the story. And within just a few chapters, three of them have died. And Sarah has died. And Abraham now dies. And Ishmael now dies. And so we see, and Genesis is doing this on purpose, that the shadow of death still looms large. The ugly result of sin breaking God's perfect shalom from all the way back in Genesis 3. We've seen the effects of sin over and over again in Genesis, and death is the ultimate consequence of sin, and it's, it's still here. It's still happening in Genesis, or in Genesis 25. Just let me read these verses that mark the, the deaths. So verse 8, Abraham breathed his last, and he died, and he was gathered to his people. Verse 17, Ishmael breathed his last, and he died, and he was gathered to his people. Verse 17, so death is still here. It's still raining. Abraham, where 13 chapters have been focused basically on him, He's now gone. He's, he's not a part of the story anymore. But there are four rays of light of God's promises that shine through the darkness of death in these 18 verses that I want to quickly point out to you. Number one, first ray of light, God is keeping his promise to make Abraham a father of a multitude of nations. God keeps his promises, right? Father Abraham has many sons. Many sons says Father Abraham, right? 
God's keeping his promise to do that. Number two, God is keeping his particular promise of a particular offspring through the promise that in Isaac, an offspring will come that will crush the serpent, Genesis 3, and bless the nations. God will have his people. Abraham gives Isaac all that he has in verses 5 to 6. He sends the other sons and daughters away with gifts to show God is still working in this particular promise in this way leading us towards Jesus. Ray of light number three. Abraham is buried by his two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, in the cave he bought when he haggled with the Hittites to bury his wife, and he's buried there because of his faith in the future promises of God. Another reminder to us, God, he wants a people, right? That's the offspring part, and God's going to give them a place. That's the land part so that his people can enjoy his presence, and Abraham is buried there with Sarah and a reminder of God's working for his people to get them a place. And finally, point number four, God keeps his promise from Genesis 17 perfectly exactly that Ishmael will father 12 princes and be a great nation. A reminder to us again that God comes into the messiest, most broken areas of our lives and our hearts and our decision and is the God who hears and who cares and who keeps his promises to the most downcast or far off like Hagar, who is not mentioned here, but is the one to whom God made the promise. So kids, sometimes sickness and sin and death can be scary. Well, not sometimes, all the time. All those things are scary, right? Sin and sickness and death, it's scary. But you need to know right now that even death cannot stop God's promises to you. It can't. If you believe in Jesus... Because Jesus died for our sins, if you believe in him, kids, you will never die. His promises beat death. His promises extend beyond death so that you can live forever. God keeps his promises through generations. That's what this first 18 verses is teaching us. The servants of God will come and go, but God's promises remain. Right, Pastors, we're going to come and go. God's promises are going to remain. Politicians, They're going to come and go really often. And God's promises, they will remain, right? Seasons of joy and trial, they come and go. And God's promises remain. Seasons of abundance and lack, they come and go. But God's promises remain. Your life, the life of those you love, it will come and go. But if you trust in Jesus, the one who died on your behalf, God's promises will remain and even death simply becomes a servant in the hand of God who will raise you to life because all of his promises find their yes in the slain and risen King, Jesus Christ. Point number two, divine sovereignty in God's promises. Look at verses 19 to 20 with me. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son, Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Get in your mind that any time you see the phrase, these are the generations in Genesis, you should view them as the author Moses marking how God is keeping his promises to the people. So you see, these are the generations, and you go, okay, he's about to tell me how he's keeping his promises. So here we see God keeping a specific promise 
of a specific offspring to crush the serpent and bless the nations through Isaac. So if you skip down to verses 24 to 26, which Alan read, we see that God keeps his promise of offspring to Isaac to bless the nations, to crush the serpent, and he does it in real time as twins are born. One is hairy and red, named Esau. How would you like that description of you forever in the Word of God? And then his brother comes out just clinging to his heel, which he will just do throughout his whole life. We see Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah in verses 19 and 20. And if you look down to verse 26, you'll see Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah has Esau and Jacob. What this means is that again, 20 years have passed with no children. And and that that just wasn't normal in these times, right? As soon as you're married, you're trying to have kids. That's just how this culture worked. And especially if you're like the family where the kids have to come for the line of promise. There's a little bit of added pressure. We better have kids. We better see God's promises come to pass. So this would have been shocking Again, people would have gone, oh, man, we had to wait so long for Isaac, and now here's this 20 years without an offspring. No male heir to the promise because of another barren womb that we find out in verse 21 Isaac has been praying about. I think this little section, verses 19 to 26, is meant to teach us two things. Neither of them knew in Genesis, but both of them highlighted with a little bit more clarity in this passage. Number one, God is showing himself sovereign in power. Just completely sovereign in power. He overcomes famines. He overcomes wars. He overcomes human foolishness. He creates nations in a womb, verse 23. He makes barren women bear children. In fact, he just keeps doing it that way in the Bible. We saw this in Sarah. We see it in Rebecca. We see it in Elizabeth with John the Baptist later. And we see the ultimate miracle of the womb when God causes a virgin to bear the Son of God in Jesus Christ. In other words, the purposes of God are worked out in such a way that no human being could boast in their power or their ability to make it happen. And instead, God's power is on display. All these things I will overcome. All these things I will do. I am the one who reigns. I am the one who has all the power. So God shows himself sovereign in power. Second, God shows himself sovereign in his freedom. Here's what I mean. Verse 23, Rebekah's prayed and said, What is going on in my womb? And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Notice the freedom of God's sovereignty. The older shall serve the younger. This was not customary. This was not how it was supposed to be. The oldest was supposed to get the favor and the blessing and get kind of everything. The younger should serve the older. But again... This is how God works in his word. He just turns things upside down. Think about our story in Genesis so far. Abel's offering, younger brother, was received instead of Cain's. And the promise came through the the littlest guy, Seth. (laughs) That wouldn't have been the way it was supposed to be in their culture. Isaac received the promise, not Ishmael. 
And maybe most of all, the way we see God turn things upside down is the King of kings who rules over all things is a crucified king. God always turning things upside down. The wisdom of man just being turned on its head. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. The purposes of God are worked out in such a way that no human being could boast in their conventions or their wisdom, and God's freedom and wisdom is on display. Their power can't be on display. God's power is on display. Their, their wisdom and their conventions can't be on display. Human wisdom and God's freedom and wisdom are on display. God is completely powerful and free to do as He pleases. He keeps His promises by His power, in His way, in His timing, for His purposes and for His pleasure. He does what He wants when He pleases. Now eventually... We're going to see Isaac make some of the same silly mistakes of his dad. But I do think in this passage we see a measure of faith from Rebecca and Isaac here that we didn't see from Sarah and Abraham. And this is, this is what parents want for our kids, right? Just be a step or two ahead of me in your walk with God. Be a step or two ahead of me in your walk with Jesus. And we see that here. And I want to point out to you what we see here because what I want to show you is that God's freedom and God's power and God's sovereignty, while it's good and it's right and it's true, does not make our lives robotic or mechanical. It's not what it does. In fact, we believe here at Bethlehem that although God is completely powerful and free, that in His wisdom, His sovereign ends are accomplished by His sovereign means. Sovereign ends accomplished by sovereign means. And the main one, all sorts of sovereign means, but the main one being prayer. That's why we pray so much. Because we think, God, we don't, we don't quite get how it works. You're, you're powerful and you're free. It's the foundation of all things. If you weren't powerful and free, we'd have no hope. But in your power and your freedom and your wisdom, you've said pray, ask, seek. And God, this is always what you'll find through the Bible. Is those things are just always intention where they're meant to be. So if we look at verses 21 and 22 and notice what Isaac and Rebekah both do when confronted with problems or concerns, what we find is that they pray. They know this God is all-powerful and free. They've seen it in their family history. They've seen it in their own lives. We just heard Haddon talk about God's sovereignty even in bringing Rebekah back to this family, and yet what do they do? They don't just go, well, God's going to do what he's going to do. God's sovereign, he's free. We're just going to hang back and see and wait what he's going to do. Instead, they, they pray. So look, when Rebecca's confused, verse 22, about what is going on inside of her belly, what does she do? She asks God. It just seems like it's the most natural thing for her. Like this, what is this? <laughs> what is going on? This, I've seen other women be pregnant, and it seems like something weird is going on inside my stomach. God, tell me. And then, in verse 21, Isaac prays for his wife. And trust me, he would have been praying all 20 of the years. Notice neither Isaac nor Rebekah suggest that Isaac take a servant as a wife. That's the progress I was talking about of the next generation. Right? We don't see Rebekah come and say, why don't you take my servant? Or Isaac go, hey, 
my dad did this thing, right? Isaac has, has seen the carnage of that foolishness. He's seen the brokenness. And even though his wife is barren, what do they both do? They, they pray. Praise for his wife. And kind of deep trust in the promises of God. And notice how verse 21 talks about when Rebekah conceives. It says, The Lord granted, that sovereignty, his prayer. That's the pleading I'm talking about. They're right there. The tension's right there. God wants us to see his divine sovereignty here and see this conception as an answer to prayer. Like, had Isaac not prayed, Rebekah wouldn't have conceived, and God is sovereign and free to do whatever he pleases. And I just want to leave that hanging there for you in tension all the time because that's what the Bible is always doing holding those things in tension. He wants his divine power and his promises to not have us kind of lean away from relationship with him, like distance ourselves, like we're mechanical robots, but instead have his divine power and his promises lean into prayer, lean into fellowship, lean into asking him, lean into going to him. And like I said before, how long has Isaac prayed about this? Probably 20 years. Probably two decades of prayers for his wife. Do you have any 20-year hardships? Decades-long hardships? Do you have any circumstances or trials you've been carrying around for a while? Do you have any prodigal children? (laughs) Chronic suffering. Broken families. Broken marriages that no one else knows about. Sinful Tendencies. Do you have any unsaved friends or family or neighbors like Pastor David was talking about in his welcome? Don't run or draw back from God because he's sovereign in those things, right? Lean in. <laughs> Lean in to God's sovereignty with great hope through prayer. That's what the story is showing us and teaching us. And kids, I'll just tell you, I feel like I'm always just bursting your bubble here. But the older you get, like your parents, you probably look at parents and adults and think, man, they have all the answers, right? We know how to get groceries for you. (laughs) We know how to do some basics. But there is more to confuse you (laughs) as you get older. More hard things happen because life is broken. You don't always have more answers. Oftentimes you have less. But if you trust in Jesus... If you would trust in Jesus, kids, say, save me from my sins. I want to follow you. I want to walk with you. I want to be with you. If you trust in him, you have the strongest, wisest father in the universe. And he delights to hear you when things get hard. He delights to hear you when you're confused. He delights that you would just talk to him and ask him for help. And he loves to listen and help. And I just want to encourage you, like Isaac gets an answer to prayer here. Rebecca gets an answer to prayer. And I just want to encourage you in God's sovereignty and in his timing and in his purposes, would you teach yourself to wait on the Lord in prayer? Sometimes, like Isaac, <laughs> might be 20 years waiting for the answer. But wait on him. As he listens to you, listen to him. And sometimes it might be like Rebecca, he just answers you right away with some crazy answer like there's two nations in your womb. Wait on him. Listen to him. And go to him in his sovereign care for you. Point number three, desperate sin 
and God's promises. So this, this story at the end of chapter uh, 25, if you're a parent, if you've ever been around a family for 10 minutes, you'll notice this familiar thing that these boys, though they have the same mom and dad, though they're twins, they couldn't be any more different. Right? They just couldn't be any more different. Esau is the outdoorsy type. right? He's impulsive in the moment, going on hunti- hunting trips, hanging out at Cabela's. Right? He's, he's adventurous, probably likes to head up to the boundary waters with just the clothes on his back and come back and tell you about all he saw and the wolves and the moose, right? all that, that kind of stuff. I don't know if there's moose in the boundary waters. Um, and then you have, you have Jacob here. He's the opposite. He's the indoorsy type. Right? He, he's calculated. He's pensive. He's always thinking. Right? He's, he's planning. He's staying inside. He's planning his career. He's ambitious. Right? He's probably planning his next multi-level marketing meeting. Right? If you do multi-level marketing, that's okay. I've just had bad experiences personally. But you can just see Jacob's wheels turning in his tent as Esau's just out being wild. Both are ambitious. Both are driven. Both are deeply flawed and, flawed and desperately sinful. Both of these guys. And the parents don't help here. They play favorites. Right? Isaac is a big fan of Esau because he likes his food. And Rebecca is a big fan of Jacob's. We saw Isaac out in the field when he first met Rebecca. It said he was out in the field and he, he saw Rebecca. So probably he was more outdoorsy himself and he loved the hunt and he loved the fresh game. He loved that his son was like him. Right? And Rebecca probably liked that Jacob stayed nearby and spent time with her. We don't know for sure, but I'm sure the parental favoritism didn't help the brothers get along. But be encouraged this morning, and I actually mean this, bad parenting can't stop the promises of God. Your bad parenting failures can't stop the promises of God. Even though you should try to keep your favorites a little more in the down low <laughs> than they did. One day, so here, that happens, one day at the end of this chapter, here's what's going on. Esau's impulsive, in-the-moment bravado, and Jacob's calculated, opportunistic ambition, they come to a head. Esau comes in from the field and is exhausted. Jacob is cooking something good. Anyone else have kids that say that they're about to die when they're hungry? I do. I can relate here. Right? I'm about to die. Right? Probably is not actually going to die. But he is hungry. Him being out in the field is not like he was out in the field for half an hour just hanging out and, and picking dandelions. Right? He's probably come back from a big excursion. Right? Boundary waters, clothes on his back kind of thing. And so he comes back and he's hungry. And Esau's God is his belly. And he glories in his shame with minds set on earthly things. And Jacob is ambitious. His God at this point is getting ahead, taking advantage of others to get his way. And as these two sinful patterns clash, Esau sells his birthright on a whim for a meal, and Jacob takes it, making sure he gets Esau to sign on the dotted line with an oath. Esau starts with this careless statement of bravado. What's my birthright to me? And, and Jacob goes, can I get that in writing? Can I get that in writing? You sign right here. And Esau in his pride and his bravado and Jacob in his calculated ambition and self-preservation make this ugly deal between brothers. 
Esau gets his momentary pleasure. Jacob gets ahead in life. And both of them have a warning for us. Hebrews 12 tells us not to be unholy or sexually immoral like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal and found no chance to repent. In other words, Esau was not looking to the future blessing of God as his hope. Right? He lived for the moment. He lived for momentary pleasures. This is a warning to us. We shouldn't miss that sin and its momentary deceitful promises destroy us and harden our hearts. It's like a red flag. Don't live just for this moment. Don't live with your God as your belly. Don't live for that next pleasure, that deceitful pleasure of sin. It won't give you what it promises. And we should also realize in Genesis at this point that people like Jacob that try to scheme to make God's promises happen, it never ends well. God will still do what he's going to do, and God does what he's going to do with Jacob. But Jacob's life gets a whole lot harder because of his scheming. Jacob walks in a whole bunch of the hard consequences of his selfish, scheming sin. And yet Jacob, different than Esau, is kind of this hopeful sign of God's purposes and grace and mercy despite our sin. God will bring about his promises. But at this point in the story, neither of these guys is looking to the promises. Both of these guys are looking to self-preservation. Neither of these brothers seem deserving of the favor of God. Like, I don't think anyone reads this story in Genesis 25 and goes, that guy, he deserves the promises of God. He's knocking out of the park in his holiness and his his patience. He's bearing all sorts of fruit of the Spirit (laughs) in this passage. And yet, just swallow this with me for a second, Jacob will receive it. (laughs) Jacob's going to walk with God someday. (laughs) And Esau will not find a chance to repent. Jacob will receive it and God will be his God and God will keep his promises through Jacob. Which leads to this application. Started out talking about being startled by sovereignty and that leads us to being startled by grace. This reality should startle us a little bit. It should seem a little bit unfair. But God is sovereignly powerful, free, and good to keep his promises in his way. So if we're going to say, what should we learn from this story? Like, how would we update this to know what we should take from this for our, for our understanding of where we're at today? And go to Romans 9 and see what Paul says. So Romans 9, verses 10 to 16. Have you turned there so you can actually look at the words with me? And Paul is just citing this story as an illustration to us of God's sovereign power and freedom in salvation. Romans 9, verses 10 to 16. Here we go. Here's what Paul says about Genesis 25. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, Not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy 
So Paul is saying this story in Genesis illustrates to us God's sovereign power and freedom and election and salvation. And here's what he's teaching us. Are we saved because of family history or pedigree? Right, kids, I really want you to hear this. Are you a Christian because mom and dad are Christians? Because mom and dad come to church? You're not. You're not. It's not because of your, the family you come from. It's by grace. Right? Are they saved by family history and pedigree? No, they had the same father. Jacob and Esau, same dad. Are we saved because of the good and bad that we've done? He says, no, they hadn't done good or bad yet. Though if we were going to look ahead in the future, there was a whole lot more bad than good early on. Well, was it because of the works they did? Maybe one of them tipped the scales in their their favor to, to earn God's salvation. No, it was determined before they did works by the call of God. Well, maybe it was because of their age or convention, like they just did it the way they did it back then. No, the older served the younger. Well, maybe it was based on who tried the hardest and who persevered the most, who just kept going. No, it's not by any human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, Paul knows his readers would know the story of Genesis 25. He knows they would know all the miraculous ways God has kept his promises. He knows they would know of the desperate, sinful self-preservation and self-serving nature of both Esau and Jacob. Neither of them, I said it already, neither of them is the model for worthy of salvation. Right? We could say the same thing, but every character in Genesis and the whole Bible, right? Adam and Eve, worthy of salvation? No, flawed and sinful. Well, what about Noah? Right? He, he walked with God. Flawed and sinful. We saw it. What about Abraham? My goodness, flawed and sinful, right? Over and over again. What about Jacob and Esau? Flawed and sinful. What about Jacob's sons? I mean, we're going to see it gets really messy and sinful with Jacob's sons. What about Moses? Flawed and sinful. What about all the kings of Israel? There were like two good ones, right? What about King David, right? A man after God's own heart. Flawed and sinful. What about Paul? Flawed and sinful. What about Peter, right? Like the the poster boy for flawed and sinful, right? There simply aren't any worthy candidates in the Bible. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And certainly, if we examine kind of the, the sinful selfishness and lust and fear and anger and abuse and self-preserving, self-serving nature of these people, you could probably look in a mirror and find characteristics that fit you. Right? Probably a lot of them. We are sinful. We have fallen short of the glory of God. And we haven't just done it a little bit. We've done it desperately and dramatically. Right? Has anyone in here just totally messed things up once in a while? Just totally failed right? in, your, in your parenting, in your marriage, in your, your job, right? with that click on the internet, with that bitter thought that you nurse in your head, with all the, the anxieties that come crushing in of the things you're supposed to be, like all these ways that we're just broken and the, the world has crushed us and caused us to not trust God. 
but one came, right? The son of suffering, right? He came into our sinful mess who wasn't sinful, and he lived the life we couldn't live, and he, he died the death we deserved to die, and then he, he rose again to conquer death that we might be forgiven and live. And God, in his sovereign power and freedom, poured out mercy that some in this room have believed. That's amazing grace. Right? It wasn't our family lineage or our goodness or our works or our effort that saved us. It's still not any of those things that save you. Right? You never say those things save you today after knowing Jesus, but some of you still live like that, right? I gotta, gotta measure up. I gotta tip the scales. I gotta cover my own shame. I have to do all these things. It wasn't any of that. None of those things could or can tip the scales in our favor. None besides Jesus is righteous, not even one. So take in for a moment that if you're sitting here right now, trusting in Jesus, passing from death to life, eternal just judgment to eternal joy and pleasures, that it was all God's sovereign power and free mercy. All of it. All of it from beginning to end. Our God does what he pleases, and so take in for a moment that it pleased him so that he could be just to punish sin and the justifier, the righteous maker of sinners, to send Jesus to take our place, forgive our sins, and bring us into his family clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It pleased him to do that. Right? Isaiah says, it was the pleasure of God to crush his son because he liked doing that? No, but because ultimately in his plan, in his good pleasure to bring him glory and to bring sons and daughters into the family who would shout and scream his eternal praise forever, it pleased him that he would make the world and his son work that way. Now, there's a lot of questions I haven't answered, and I already told Nick this was going to be a long one, so I don't have time. Happy to talk about any questions this brings up. But the main thing as we read Genesis 25 and Romans 9 that we should walk away with is that it is an, un, an amazing thing, unbelievable thing beyond our comprehension that God in His sovereign freedom and power saves sinners. When none is righteous, not even one. It is all mercy and grace. None of it is deserved. And this should startle us to our core. <laughs> like, like, if it's true, like, shouldn't it just change everything? <laughs> if it's all by grace, shouldn't it change everything? Shouldn't it change how you live day to day and process your circumstances and process your life events and process your marriage and your, your parenting and process how you view your neighbors and process how you view political adversaries and process all these things and go, I have been saved completely by the free, sovereign power and mercy and goodness of God. He wrote my name in the book of life before there were anything at all, before the world was. And he came and he got me. He made good on that promise when he wrote my name. By grace we have been saved. And by grace God has pursued us with goodness and mercy all the days of our lives. By grace God has worked out every moment and every day to draw us to himself, to trust Jesus. And then he keeps us until the day God's people 
are gathered in God's place to enjoy God's presence for all of eternity by his merciful power and freedom. So just four things, four quick things I think should happen in our souls if the Spirit is helping us when we, when we think about this. Number one, I hope, I really mean this, I hope that you can have a, a mindset kind of shift that will help you look back and forward on every event in your life and see a God pursuing you with goodness and mercy. Like, color every event like that. In the past and in the future and in the present. Even when you have trusted yourself or run to other things or completely made a mess of things, God was there pursuing you with goodness and mercy all the days of your life. No moment has been wasted. No moment is purposeless. All has been for your good in the sovereign care of your Father. Number two, I hope this helps you, I hope this helps you rejoice again in the gospel that saves by grace and not by works. We're Christians. <laughs> like This is the thing that makes us who we are. That we are saved by grace and not by works. You want to earn your way to God? You can find a lot of ways to do that. None of them will work. You can find a, a lot of ways to do that. You can, you can get on whatever treadmill you want to. But as Christians, we rejoice in the sovereign and free mercy of God and declare in all humility, I have been saved by grace and grace alone. Number three, I hope it helps us to extend grace and mercy as we've received it. Like if we are a people that at the foundation knows, man, it's God's freedom, God's power, God's mercy. None is righteous, not even one. I see my sin. I see Jesus on the cross bearing my sin. I see God opening my eyes by spirit to see Jesus, him dwelling in me to keep me. He's done all that. I'm a recipient of grace. Man, does that change how you view other people? Especially those who haven't yet been saved by grace. Does it change your anger into longing for them? Does it change your, your frustration into pleading for them? And number four, in light of that, I hope it helps you lean into God's sovereign power and freedom in prayer and that you would genuinely do what David said. I love it. Man, write that name on the card. <laughs> right, put, it in the, put it in the pedestals as you leave. Drop it at the welcome desk. And what if, what if we just, for the next 10 years, is every week we're all praying for the lost ones in our lives, pleading for neighbors and coworkers, pleading for prodigal children, just pleading for God's sovereign, free mercy to run and do his work in these south neighborhoods and all the way to the nations. God has been and will continue to pursue us with goodness and mercy all the days of our lives. Let's lean in, knowing his purpose, rejoicing in his power, extending his grace, and leaning in in prayer. So let me, let me pray for us. Lord, we're going to come now to your, your table. We're going to eat and drink with you. And it's all by grace. It is all by mercy. So that as we eat and drink, Lord, would we lay down any striving, <laughs> lay down any self-righteousness, Lay down any needing control and God rest in your sovereign, good, free, 
power and mercy. All culminating, all your promises finding their yes in Jesus who did what we could never do so that we would never die. We could live forever to forever shout your praises. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.